The Hamlet Podcast, episode 88. Hello and welcome to this exploration of Shakespeare's Hamlet with me, your host, Connor Hamlety. For all listeners who have been eagerly awaiting the start of the play within the play, happily we have made it. The players arrived in Elsinore something like 30 episodes ago, and now at last we will see them start their performance. Hamlet has been giving his own show while the court assembles to watch this play, being very rude and very peculiar, as discussed in the previous episode. Ophelia has borne the brunt of it, keeping an impressively level head despite Hamlet's twisted answers and ideas. Hamlet shrewdly outmanoeuvred her with his nothing pun, and now she rather gently comments on his behaviour. You are merry, my lord. Hamlet answers rather simply, who, I? Of course, there's a huge range of ways that this could be played. Is he distracted, trying to keep an eye on Claudius and see if he's in a good position to observe the king during the play? Which next move is he thinking about? It certainly makes sense for him to be messing with Ophelia, since he and we and even she knows that Polonius and the king are interested in Hamlet's behaviour towards her. So is he playing up? Hamlet has also involved himself in the player's contribution to this evening's entertainment at Elsinore, and he draws a little attention to this in their next exchange. Ophelia confirms that, yes, she is indeed talking to Hamlet, with a simple, I, my lord. Hamlet launches into another seemingly mad response here. Oh God, your only jig-maker! What should a man do but be merry? For look you how cheerfully my mother looks, and my father died within these two hours. This line begins very likely with a reference to Will Kemp, the clown from Shakespeare's company who had so recently left and danced a jig all the way to Norwich. With Kemp gone, Burbage, who was playing Hamlet, could cast himself as the only jig-maker in the company. And indeed, Hamlet is here casting himself in the role of the fool in front of his uncle-slash-stepfather's court before this show begins. As the fool, he can assume a kind of licence, and he can say things with a little more edge than he might otherwise. He's also playing mad. He asks, what should a man do but be merry? What is there to do but appear happy? For look you, he continues, how cheerfully my mother looks and my father died within these two hours. Again, there's a kind of flirtation with the liveness of the performance, since Shakespeare has elsewhere referred to the two hours traffic of the stage, and indeed, we aren't quite two hours into this play just yet. Hamlet is of course deliberately getting the numbers wrong to highlight his distaste for his mother's hasty marriage, and for how happy she seems to look with her new husband. Ophelia intervenes before the deliberate mistake appears too egregious, and she corrects him, saying, Nay, tis twice two months, my lord. Time is passing as the play continues. It was only a month, a little month, according to Hamlet, before Gertrude remarried, and so presumably it's three months later now. Regardless, Hamlet is forcing the point that even at this remove, it would be very early for her to be remarrying, and a quarter of a year has already passed since she did. Hamlet answers sarcastically again. So long? Nay then, let the devil wear black, for I'll have a suit of sables. Oh, heavens! Died two months ago and not forgotten yet. 
then there's hope a great man's memory may outlive his life half a year. But, by Our Lady, he must build churches then, or else he shall suffer not thinking on. With the hobby horse, whose epitaph is, for oh, for oh, the hobby horse is forgot. Hamlet might be playing mad, but Shakespeare doesn't relax his intelligence even here. This dense little paragraph is particularly rich, so as ever we will unpack it piece by piece. All the way back in episode 19, we discussed Hamlet and Horatio's references to sable, that luxurious material often seen in heraldry. Here Hamlet quips that he will leave his customary suits of solemn black to the devil, and instead dress himself in full finery again, since it would appear that all appropriate mourning for his father, his mother's husband, has already ended. He can wear luxurious clothing again, just as his mother is devoting herself to a different kind of luxury. Can it have been so long already? He's really going for Gertrude here, swiping at her behaviour. His point is that she's reacting as though her husband died years rather than months ago. There's hope, he mocks, that a great man's memory may outlive his life for even six months. Kings are usually commemorated and remembered for considerably longer than that, of course, but this is Hamlet's point. It's only four months, and his father is all but forgotten. By Our Lady, he cries, a man must build churches then, or else shall he suffer not thinking on. A man, or a king, should attempt to build monuments while he's alive, because otherwise his loved ones will clearly forget him. Hamlet ends this sour little attack with a reference to the hobby horse. This was an integral part of the May Day festivities, one of the many recognisable figures that would have danced around the Maypole. With the invocation of Our Lady, already removed from Protestant worship by the time that Shakespeare was writing the play, he draws the audience's mind back a generation to a time when devotion to Mary, the mother of Jesus, Our Lady, was integral to religious life. The hobby horse was another image of a world that was fast disappearing as Protestant life, and particularly the burgeoning Puritan movement, eradicated much of the cultural inheritance of the Catholic Middle Ages. Much earlier in the play we discussed the differences between Hamlet's father's reign, which Shakespeare characterised with qualities of the medieval past, and the new world represented by Claudius. Here, in microcosm, he's doing it again, but with one extra twist. The hobby horse could certainly call to mind the olden days of maypoles and may dances and morris dancers, but it's also a horrible term for a promiscuous woman. Shakespeare uses it very memorably in Othello and in The Winter's Tale, and Hamlet is certainly landing a dig at his mother here too. He quotes this old ode to the hobby horse that is entirely lost, but which he quoted as well in Love's Labour's Lost, in much the same way, the hobby horse is forgot. The old world is gone, the old king is forgotten, and Hamlet's mother is outrageous for sleeping with a new man. Hamlet might be playing mad, but he's certainly no fool. Now, at last, the oboes play, and the dumb show enters. Just as we've had Hamlet referring obliquely to an older world in the previous lines, here Shakespeare deliberately antiquates the player's performance in Elsinore. Despite all the conversations in Act 2, Scene 2, about contemporary theatrical fashions in London, the player's show begins with a very retrograde, old-fashioned device. The dumb show is a survivor of medieval morality plays, 
and is a silent presentation of a scene before it is performed. Something like a trailer, perhaps. Shakespeare's play Pericles is narrated by the medieval poet John Gower, and his introductions to various scenes are also accompanied by dumb shows. While the device was popular in 16th century Elizabethan drama, it was definitely old-fashioned by the time that Shakespeare wrote Hamlet. While we don't have any idea of what the oboe music that accompanied it might have been like, we do have a fairly lengthy stage direction that describes this moment of the dumb show. There are several textual variations, but the one that I enjoy the most is from the first quarto, Q1, and I like it because it sounds the most old-fashioned. It goes as follows. Oboe's play. The dumb show enters. Enter a king and a queen very lovingly, the queen embracing him and he her. She kneels and makes a show of protestation unto him. He takes her up and declines his head upon her neck, lays him down upon a bank of flowers. She, seeing him asleep, leaves him. Anon comes in a fellow, takes off his crown, kisses it, and pours poison in the king's ears, and exit. The queen returns, finds the king dead, and makes passionate action. The poisoner, with some two or three mutes, comes in again, seeming to lament with her. The dead body is carried away. The poisoner woos the queen with gifts. She seems loath and unwilling a while, but in the end accepts his love. When the players presenting this dumb show have exited, Ophelia conveniently asks what they've just seen. What means this, my lord? Hamlet replies that, Marry, this is minching malico. It means mischief. It's possible that malico, maybe malico, maybe malecho, is a bastardization of the Spanish mal hecho, which means something like a wicked act, and we shall soon discuss why it would be Spanish of all languages. The texts all seem to agree on the weirdness of this phrase, but conveniently for once, Hamlet himself explains it. It means mischief. Ophelia, really the most useful character in this scene, helpfully explains that, but like this show imports the argument of the play. Most likely, she's saying, the dumb show is presenting what's going to happen in the story. Next up comes a spoken prologue, which will arrive in the next episode, along with, finally, the first lines of the play within the play. I hope you'll join me for that, and until then, do be sure to visit thehamletpodcast.com. You can check us out on Twitter or on Instagram, or of course on Facebook too. I'll speak to you next time.